Hello and welcome to We're All Gonna Die in Other Fun Facts, a semi-regular, occasionally amusing, and rarely funny series of conversations on a random topic. This episode is entitled Uprooted, and it's about a new collection of poems about trauma and family history and telling the truth called Uprooted. And our guest for this episode is someone who knows something about this new collection of poems entitled Uprooted. It's author... Nina Paidolf, 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 like your bills are paid off, yes, like your bills are paid off, I realized halfway through the intro, I was like, am I going to be able to stick the landing on the name, and I overthought, don't worry about it, I overthought it, it's what I've been saying your last name as forever, and instant I hit record, I can't talk anymore, so hi Nina, how you doing? I'm doing great, Matt. It's a pleasure being here with you and talking about my new book. I really appreciate you interviewing me today. No problem. No problem. So let's get down to it. You know, the this collection of poems. Um, yeah, about, well, well so the title, what, what's the significance of the title? Let's start there. Let's start with the cover of the book. Why not? We don't even, we don't even got to read it. We'll just look at the cover. Uprooted. Um, well, when you think of being something being rooted, it's, uh, it's firm in the ground and it's secure like a tree if it's mm. secure in the ground. But when storms hit, as we've had a lot lately here in Pittsburgh, as we're having uh, right now, trees, yeah, <laughs> some of those trees, some of those trees become uprooted. So it's about families and it's about in my, it, the, the tree symbolism is about my family tree and how, because I was adopted, I, and had a lot of trauma, it's uprooted. So in a sense, I'm a tree and I'm uprooted. <laughs> uprooted, but you're still alive though. That's the difference though. The uprooted tree <laughs> typically <laughs> is done, but um, yeah, but I think this, you know, we were talking a little bit before I hit record about you know, your poetics as an expression of trauma slash maybe an act of healing slash an act of truth telling. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, go fully Zoolander, but trauma is so hot right now, but it really is, you know, academically, we are thinking about it a lot. Yes. And also maybe for me, it's this thing that are we finally having a societal reckoning around trauma? Well, that would be encouraging because I think for so many years, uh, in, families in particular would put any kind of trauma uh, under the wood you know, hide it. It's under the carpet. It's under the wood. It's in the basement. It's somewhere in the attic in a box that's marked uh, unknown baby, you know, um, birthed. Um, It's, it's, it, it keeps people quiet and on edge all at the same time. So how can you heal? And I mentioned this before we started this uh, interview. If you don't discuss it in one form or another, be it with a mm. therapist, be it on paper, uh, confronting the person or people who were involved in that trauma. If, if you don't confront it, it will eat you up alive. I mean, we see this with a lot of the uh, people who went to war and they come back with post-traumatic stress. Well, they don't want to talk about it, but they're not going to ever heal they're just going to continuously relive it if they don't get the proper help for it. So, yeah. And I think it, it all that reminds me of, you know, the, the idea of, you know, what Lacan, Jacques Lacan always said was what the truth is. The truth is the hottest of hot potatoes. And it <laughs> is and in his revision of psychology you know, he says, we don't go into states of denial that, in fact, denial is our very state of living. And I think about that and I think about then poetics as, or any art form 
as a way of making that space to handle that hot potato or explore that uncomfortableness. And that there is, for me, it's always like this double bind where in one place you are putting forward the truth, the, the, the real, the, the uncomfortable. And in the other hand, aren't we, or aren't poets and artists also making almost this weird safe space and almost this weird distance that allows us to engage. And I was sure. thinking about that when reading your book, that there is this push me, pull you sort of thing happening, right? Yeah. So I, um, I took a course with uh, Monica Prince through White Whale recently, and she's phenomenal. So I just want to say, man, if you haven't read her work, read it. Um, but she addresses um, dissonance when you're experiencing trauma, say rape, mm -hmm. and that while your body is physically being raped, but you're somewhere else. It's as if you've left your body and you're, I don't know where you are. And so when you're writing about trauma, there is that kind of disconnect because in a way you're reliving it again. So it's just a common um, reaction. Probably there's a name for it um, that happens when you're writing about stuff or painting about uh, something that involves trauma. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. Well, again, I, I, I'm thinking about Lacan again. You know, there, there's this idea of, for him, trauma, true trauma is the thing that you cannot put in a symbolic order, that you cannot right. make sense of, that it is the, the, the festering unspeakable. You know, you read or you watch like a, you know, a really good production of Death of a Salesman. And you think about how the Willie Loman character is shattered because he cannot face the truth anymore. Um, mm -hmm. you know, when Phillips, they said, you know, like when Philip Seymour Hoffman was Willie Loman on Broadway, um, he would go out an hour before the, 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 the first curtain and go out and just be on this. People would come in and Philip Seymour Hoffman would already be on the stage muttering to himself and that he was this character that was living in the past and the present at the same time. And the past was overriding the present because he had never dealt with what happened in that hotel room in Boston. Wow, that's you know? deep. Yeah, and so, yeah, I, and thinking about that, and I, I think about also our national reckoning, and and you know we're recording this podcast in mid August, almost late August. I guess it's late August of twenty twenty one. We are, we are weeks away from 20 years of 9-11 yeah and I think about our national reckoning on trauma and I don't know if we ever really dealt with that thing that happened almost 20 years ago I don't know if we I mean I think there is also a perpetual bright-sidedness uh you know we are the the culture that gave the world Nike's just do it Yes. Philosophy. And mm -hmm. I think the way that, you know, I make that, you know, half joke, the trauma is so hot right now. And I, I have a conference panel that was accepted by a major conference because trauma was in the title of the, you know, and there's a lot of trauma studies work being done right now in academia in all sorts of fields. And is it that we are finally nationally having a reckoning and it's almost like this, you know, synchronicity thing that here, your book is happening as part of this, as we are, we're finally facing the past or maybe, you know, Willie Loman is the, for me, the quintessentially American man. Yes. We would like to think and it's everybody the story. Yeah. 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 I would love, you know, I know people like love to think it's the Marlboro man, but it's Willie. Yeah. Um, so 
I was just thinking how much I uh, really loved that story, Death of a Salesman. And it's kind of ironic because like I was in sales for years and then my my biological father was in sales. So it's kind of in my blood. And um, it's just ironic. But when I read that story, it just hit home in so many ways. And um, and I think I think you're right. I think we are beginning to, for lack of better words, awaken as a nation, as as a country, as the world, because while 9-11 was very significant for so many reasons, uh, so much tragedy, so much unpredictableness, and now COVID. And I think whenever you're in a state of uh, emergency, if you will, Mm. you start to reflect more as a human being about how fragile life really is. Yeah. And also you think our reflection or our stability, I mean, you know, how much this crisis, the crisis we are still in, you know, for how many months was about stay home, don't interact, distract yourself by binge watching. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, binge reading. Yeah. Um, Binge eat. Binge whatever. You know, all of these domestic pursuits and, you know, thinking about having all that time now that people have or had for those 18 months that we were in full-blown lockdown. Right. And I think when you have a lot of time, you can't calm your mind down the same way you might or ignore your mind I should say if you're busy 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 constantly working constantly doing meeting deadlines doing this doing that and when you're home and you know if you go out you could potentially get sick Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it combines both the fear of dying and the reality of the calm inside that your mind almost does review what if i die what what will i be leaving behind what's the relevance of living all these philosophical things and if you binge watch tv you're it's still there it just it just so i think the job of a good writer a good artist is to say hey wait a minute I need to use this time to really go into those places that I haven't been going in and let them come out as they will, because we need to do this. We need to say enough's enough and bring the trauma to the forefront. Give it, it give it its uh, time to uh, be recognized and then not just recognize it, but what do you gain from it? Yeah. Right. If yeah. you can't gain something, at least you gain the awareness. Right. And then you make it OK for other people too to do the same thing. Yeah. Like you're not crazy, by the way. This is a real thing. Yeah. And so I guess when it comes to then writing poetry and your poetics and can we talk about your writing process then? And how um, memory, how memories become poems? If well, for me, sense. yeah. So for me, it would be, um, I sit down, I just, I get this wave of, I need to just write and I just write. And then as I start to write uh, visually, almost like a movie, almost, hmm. I will, if it's a poem that I'm reliving something, for instance, that happened, like the day that I found out that I was adopted mm-hmm. or the day that my um, birth certificate, my uh, initial birth certificate, because when you're adopted, you usually have two, the That's one you're funny. born with and the one. Yeah. So the day that that arrived and I could finally find out my biological parents' names, mm-hmm. um, I can actually go back into time somewhat. And what was I doing? How did I feel? And so it's almost like a slow motion um, movie 
for me. And that way I can bring in some of those details that make the poem or the story more real to the reader. Mm. And that's my right. And then I'll go over it, of course, like every writer does, every poet does, or every artist does, until I'm sick of looking at it. And then I'll have someone else help me edit it because if it's too close to home, I can't always edit it. And then eventually it will become a real working poem that I'm actually proud to call mine. That's pretty much the process. That's the process. So Mm -hmm. one question I have or one question I struggle with in my own poetics because I come from a very similar place. You know, there's something... I've been thinking about it a lot. There's something that happened to me 20 years ago. And I'm still working on that poem. I still haven't, I don't have, a. I don't even know if I have a blank word file with the title yet or a title yet, but it's in my head. And, you know, that's very similar to my process then is this thinking about this moment, thinking about this particular night, thinking about the things that led to that particular night. And this question of being, in terms of recording, in terms of these as maybe autobiographical poems or history poems or whatever, being factually correct and being emotionally correct. And And I think about that tension where I'm like, it would be a cooler image if... I'd be a more likable narrator if, maybe, or or a smarter narrator if, if I said this. But that's not how it happened. And how to work, how to work with that. And that's something I really, in my own writing, struggle with. I always err on the side of factually correct because I feel like I'm writing for history or I'm writing to preserve my experience or whatever, let people know I was here. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I would do some of my poems. I don't know. Maybe what you could do is just actually just write it as it happened and not worry about it in terms of the poetics. Just worry about it with the the actual details of it. Mm. And then you can go in and you can add some poetics later. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big compose in my head person. Mm-hmm. And this, the thing I'm talk about, talking about is something that had happened, like there were like five contributing factors to get to this moment. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, how do I, you know, if I don't want to over, yeah, I, I'm a big pre-writer in my head poet. I'm a big, if I don't I start a poem until I have a title, a title, the first line and maybe the last line, that's, that's when then I will, I will grab a pen or open up that that dot docx file okay well that's a little different than how i do it although sometimes i do have a title um or i'll start out with the title and then i'll work in the poem because i know the title was like the topic for me and that could change right the title could change yeah so if I wanted to write about what it was like to be a military spouse, for instance, and I don't really have a title, but I know that it's going to be about that time period, those 10 years I was a military spouse, uh, I might just use a, a military spouse as a title. And if that works, fine. And if it doesn't, I'll rewrite it. And then I can give myself permission to start writing. Mm. And then I can add more details. I don't even know sometimes how it's going to end or how it's going to begin. Not always. Um, So, yeah, you know what I think you're doing? You're like limiting yourself by having to have a title, having to have um, a first and last line, because theoretically, then your mind doesn't want to leave that spot and go into the important parts. Yeah. So actually, if we, I think, so actually, can we zero in? Actually, I know I had said there's other poems I wanted you to read, but can we talk about the poem then on page 20, since you brought up being a military spouse, Desert Storm, El Paso, Texas. 
Yes, of course. <laughs> and if you could read that poem and then talk about like maybe the process for that or how, how that process evolved. Was was Desert Storm El Paso, Texas, the original title? Desert Storm was. Desert I Storm. think Desert Storm was. Mm. Um, and then the place was added later because it was an important part of the poem. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Did you did you want me to read it or did yeah, you Yeah, let's do it. it? Let's do it. Uh, well, okay. you do it. I'm not, I'm just going to, I'm not going to read it. You can read it. <laughs> yeah, <all right. laughs> the wrong pronoun. So, um, Desert Storm, El Paso, Texas. Tormented by sand spit whipped skin. Brutal sun dehydrates. Ivy fluids temporary, temporarily replenish. Accustomed to three rivers and plenty of East Coast rain. She is foreign to this place where the Rio Grande divides. Her active duty husband spends hours working border patrol. Captive to her new role, tears evaporate. She quickly learns what gringo means. She must take care of their ill daughter, spiked with fever and dysentery. Every time she goes outside, her skin turns into leather. Mm. Mm -hmm. That poem I started writing, um, I think when Jan Beatty was my mentor at Carlo. Mm. And um, it wasn't quite done yet. Um, and I literally worked on this poem for off and on a couple years oh, wow. until it felt done. Even though I knew all of the things I wanted to say, it was just getting it in the sink that I needed to say it in as mm. a poem versus as a, a story, right? Yeah. And so adding El Paso, Texas was important because he literally was doing border patrol since uh, Mexico borders right there. Mm. And I was literally at home with my, my then toddler who was extremely sick and wasn't getting better. And I had to keep, keep taking her back to the hospital, the military hospital, because I didn't know what was wrong with her. She was not getting better. And uh, that was so there were two major things happening besides being dirt poor, I might add. Yeah. One was. He was never around, so I had to do all this myself. And the other thing was she was really sick and could have died. Mm. So um, Desert Storm had a lot of uh, impact on me as a, a military spouse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so you, yeah, so that that title does do a lot of work in terms of place and era. Though mm -hmm. Desert Storm is a delicious, has a delicious double meaning. You get era and literally, you know, this, this adjusting to the climate, adjusting to time and space. So I'm also someone that takes several years to write a poem. And I like something you said maybe five minutes ago about looking at it till you're sick of it. Yeah. I call that being word blind. Word blind. That's I'm, good. Like almost like being snowblind. There's too much light. There's too much focus on it to the point where you just can't even see it anymore. Right. This is also, I know when it's time to stop correcting essays. Yes. I'm yes. word blind to it. I just, I'll get to the end of the paragraph and go, what's this one about again? That's when I know it is time to put the stack down. That's when I know it's time to put the poem away. Yeah, and it's hard sometimes to let go and put it away, knowing that you're so close, but you're not there yet. But if you want to save your sanity, it's always a good, good thing to take a break for a lot of things, not just poems. But for, yes. for a lot of things, not just poems. And, <laughs> yeah. and also thinking about, I think for me, that intrinsic feeling that difference or knowing that difference between being word blind and it actually being done. 
Yeah, it's almost it's almost sometimes like uh, when you read it and you hear someone else read it and then it just sounds right and then you know you're done. Yeah. But if you keep stumbling over it every time you read it or read it aloud or somebody else reads it in a different way than you really anticipated, yeah. then it's not done. Then it's not done. That's a really good tool, actually, you know, because I, I, I think about myself as, again, somebody who, you know, had to come, had to mature as a poet. I thought I was like, oh, I'm a poet when I'm 16 years old, and I had no idea how any of this worked. <laughs> I didn't know how to do any of it. And, yeah, I, I remember sending out or, you know, that awful beat thing that none of the beats did. First thought, best thought, no revision. Remember that? Yeah, I'm so glad students do, don't do that anymore. They're over that. Um, yeah, I mean, because you're, yeah, I agree yeah, completely. That's over. This is so necessary. And I mean, if somebody can write a fantastic piece of uh, work without rewriting it, good for them. And, yeah. and there are some people that can. I'm not trying to say they can't, but I think the majority of us are never satisfied completely with yeah. our work. It's part of the process. It's it's just part of being creative, period. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I even think about, I mean, the other extreme of that, I, I, I got to meet Donald Hall when he was Poet Laureate. I believe it was when he was Poet Laureate. Um, nice. And he had said as part of his keynote address, the two things were one that for him, it took a year. It took a year from first draft to get to the point where he was ready to share it with other people and start sending something out. Mm -hmm. I thought it was pretty extreme at the time. And now actually now that I'm in it and doing it more seriously a year, really that's quick. Um, and then the other thing is he had said how he, is still revising his poems, including anthologized ones. He's like, my readers' copies of my own books have notes in them. Well, that's a man who's truly dedicated, right? He's truly dedicated. I had also, I guess, the other part about that, when, when, to loop back to this question of trauma and poetics, you know, he had uh, at that point, that was, I believe, when the painted bed had come out. And he had the collection without that came up before that, which was about the death of Jane Kenyon, his wife. Mm -hmm. And he talked about it. And I was not at the time I was not familiar with Jane Kenyon. And I Googled, as we all do, because we know everything now. And mm -hmm. I didn't realize she had died five. It was at that point, six or seven years prior to meeting him. I thought she died last year. Like, I thought she died the year before I met him. The way that he spoke about it and the way that he talked about it and the, the poems that he was writing. I mean, there's a poem in, the, in Painted Bed where he talks about being half awake in the middle of the night and the comforter was bunched up. And for a second there, he thought he had bumped into her while they were sleeping. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, and he had this moment where the, the grief was suddenly very fresh again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when he spoke about that, he about broke down. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, this must have just happened. And no, it was, it was six, at least six years prior that she passed away. And that he also had this, like, persistence of memory, persistence of pain, which I think is also interesting or troubling or or complicating about you know writing about trauma and writing about the past you know i i i get it but i think well i'm so like my mom has she died less than a year ago almost a year this september and i'm in this like group that gets together and talks about you know um mourning our you know our mourning process and you know there's these standard rules you go through whatever and then you get angry and then you get depressed and then you get better but 
in reality, trauma is just like death. When, it, when you look at a picture of someone that's died, maybe five, 10 years later, it, it can become fresh again because in your heart, you haven't forgotten. It doesn't just disappear, you know, and the same way trauma, even if you write about it or talk about it, it doesn't just disappear. It's just now it's more real because it's out there. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so people in my support group for, you know, losing a loved one during COVID, They'll, they'll say, you know, some days they'll be fine. And then boom, they'll be in the grocery store. And then all of a sudden they'll just start crying and people might like think they're crazy, but that's what it is. It, yeah. you can, emotions are very complex. You're right. It's complicated. And you know what? You just have to learn how to not give a shit what other people think and just do yeah. what's right for you. Yeah, that's true. I guess that's the other thing about our national bright-sidedness, that there should be a, a convenience to how this all works out. Yeah, right. So, like, let's take <laughs> your grandmother died two years ago. Aren't you over it yet? Yeah. I mean, she lived a long life. Why are you still missing her? I mean... If you deny and suppress feelings, what do you think it does to you? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Willie Loman. <laughs> well, yeah. we also were talking briefly before I hit record about, you know, these things are personal and the people who are part of your family, in your life, in your friend circle. What yes. does it mean, you know, to then, oh, this is all out here. This is this is now in print. Yeah, I think as a, uh, a writer, as a poet, I was a little bit afraid of that. Um, fortunately, mom died. Uh, so she's not reading these, but uh, friends, family, um, I haven't heard a whole lot yet from them. Uh, one person did comment, she hopes that I can now heal. And I thought that was very telling because I don't think she realized the extent of what she was going to end up reading until she read it. And yet she was there when my sister was murdered. She was there, actually helped me find my biological mother. And um, so it's interesting how when things become on paper, they're finalized and people just can't ignore them. Mm. Right. It's like there's this like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. Really? That happened? And 90% of what I write is truth. I mean, there may be some things in here that aren't exactly truth, but they're close enough. Well, again, and, I think that, does that go back to that emotionally correct versus yeah. actually correct? And I think, again, your emotions do make it kind of complicated. So maybe you won't remember the exact day something happened, or maybe your mind won't remember the exact words that were, that were spoken, but it will remember the emotion that you felt at that time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you, you know, yeah, not everything's going to be a hundred percent accurate. I don't think unless you're really great with your memory everything and your emotions yeah yeah so which also then is i mean there is the the auteur versus the author versus the auteur author comes from auteur which is of course the goddesses that wrote history and if it was not written it was not history and it was not real I think that has so much sway on people, even even in our post-truth era, post-factual era, you know, where we can all hunt and seek out or, or at least people get gullible and fall into conspiracy theories and alternative facts and all of that. Um, yeah, that that function is still really powerful. Yeah, but also the, the flip side, like you said, is. Um, if it's something like 
people think something's a fact and it may or may not be or isn't and they take it as fact because it's on paper that's dangerous too right so (laughs) that is opening up a can of worms which is why uh one of my professors when i was in uh getting my master's in teaching told me something he was he was absolutely dead on he he wrote a he he wrote lots of factual papers he was really into journalism and he said you know just because something's written down doesn't mean it's true and you can't take it as truth and it's just like you have to be able to support the truth yeah. with facts yeah. and and also who is who are who is giving you the facts another thing is it or not i teach my students to always check all the angles to things for just that reason yeah because you can't just assume things right yeah So can we hear a couple more poems before we move to the bottom five? Can we yes. hear a couple more poems? I have a mini reading. Um, I'd love to hear Ghost Strings on page 28. And, and uh, Love is Not as Clean as a Hospital Room on 18. And whatever else you would like to read. Okay. We could have well, mini reading function to our, to our conversation about memory and trauma and death of a yeah. It's all death of a salesman, really, folks. My three sons is pretty good, too. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, ghost strings. Confined to her wheelchair with swollen legs, wearing foreign socks, I give her chocolates. She welcomes its gooey sweetness. Dark space encompasses us like a heavy slate. She clings to ghost strings, evening thunders in overdue rain. Mm. Hey. Mm. Um, and let's see, love is not. What, what page was that other one? That is on 18. Thank you, because I don't want to fumble through this thing. No too. worries. All right. So uh, this was written for Sally, and she was my biological mother. Just get that out there now. Love is not as clean as a hospital room. On this day, my birthday, I smell honeysuckle crisp air while I sip my coffee. The owl's low-pitched echo settles as doves peek in. Love is not as clean as a hospital room. Sally left bare-armed like that hollow spot where roots bulge with secrets. She was abandoned by her mother and missing lover. Sally's pain stayed woven like spider webs that keep the captive dangling. Forced to celebrate my birth in silence. She never talked about it until I turned 19 and sent out for my original birth certificate. Her name and age revealed, along with my birth name, Nothing remotely like my current name. For my father's name, only an empty space. We met downtown with her husband, Bob. She tells me I was her firstborn. My biological father was engaged to someone else. She shows me pictures of my half-siblings, We exchange phone numbers and addresses. She sends me cards for the holidays and letters over the years. We keep in touch even after I move away. My siblings grow up and have children of their own. My girls wonder why our names are not noted in her obituary. The mother dove heads closer, reminds me to stay away from her nest, tucked in the upper corner of my porch where bricks separate homes. The morning rest, then unrest. Think of Sally. How 
cancer took her away on the last day of October. I unfold her letters while the dove sings. Music has no borders. And, um, Oof. so good. Well, thank you. So good. Um, I think I will read. I don't know which one I want to read. If I want to read the orchids one or in the body. Um, why not both? I think I'm going to both. <laughs> Why not both? Why not both? And then we'll talk about how to get this book and then we'll move on to the bottom five. All right. All right. Well, um, artificial orchids. Uh, my mother suffered from dementia for the last part of her life. So artificial orchids. My mother says the white orchids in the pale green vase on the marble windowsill are alive. They are real just dried up. She forgets she bought them years ago from one of her expensive catalogs. She has a variety of silk orchids next to the potted plants in her living room where she waters them. She doesn't notice that while she sits at the teakwood table with her youngest granddaughter eating an oversized piece of birthday cake, her niece and I cart out mounds of papers, advertisements, charity envelopes, requesting donations, clippings with paper clips to the incinerator. She doesn't hear the door opening and closing or react to the paper bags missing from the hallway near her walker. Two weeks later, she talks about cleaning her kitchen floor, still not noticing things are gone. She asks me to buy more paper clips so that she can cut out articles about Trump or cartoons from Newsweek. More orchids await water. She gets ready for the doctor's visit, looking perfectly put together. Matching knit orange pantsuit draped around her neck is a strand of carnelian beads that dangle down to her belly. Rust red lips with her walker ready. She passes another vase of orchids. At the doctor's office, she convinces him that she is still capable he remembers all of the work that she did as the head of the medical library, asks, how do you survive without her? He schedules her for a visit next year. Oh, that should be, how do they survive without her? He schedules her for a visit next year. Back at home, she asks, have you seen my watering can? Um, and then the last one, um, uh, which I think is very, a, a really good poem to end with, is In the Body, September 5th, 2020. Two ravens make a ruckus in the trees like children refusing to leave the playground at dusk. Barely able to, to walk, my right foot in an air cast, I wonder if the candle that I lit stirred things into motion. Mother clings to life longer than anticipated. For weeks she has not been eating, and now she is unable to speak. Just after 6 p.m., I get the call, your mom has passed. Lungs release congestion. I've been mourning for years, cluttered by memories, hardened like cement. Mother's passing has ended my contract. One month later, I place her ashes next to my departed sister. Over the speakerphone, Aunt Shelley recites Hebrew prayers. Tears pressed in my belly flood from years of layered history. Tethered traditions slip into earth. I refuse to leave behind this legacy for my daughters. I don't want to plot there. Let my ashes become a tree. There you have it. All right. So how do folks get a hold of Uprooted? Um, and there'll be well, links when I post the podcast, of course, but. 
Okay. Um, well, they if if they want, they can go on Amazon and order it directly there, or they can send me an email, which you'll give a link to, and I can sign uh, yeah. one for them and mail it to them. Um, and they can pay through PayPal or we can figure out that too. And that email is, I will just say Nina poet at gmail.com. I'll make an official link, but for those of you, those who are listening on their phones, Nina poet at Gmail. And it's spelled exactly as you would think it would be right. 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 Exactly. Um, and what else? How else? And, and then um, I'm having a couple book readings here in Pittsburgh, um, and we can post those links too. One yes. will be at Riverstone um, Bookstore, which is in Squirrel Hill, Pittsburgh, on Forbes Avenue, and that will be September 30th um, at 7 or 7.30 p.m., and then I think it's 7.30 p.m., but I'll double check that time. And then the other one is going to be at White Whale Bookstore, which is going to be uh, November 9th. And that will actually be my official book launch. And that's going to be in the evening at 7, I believe, as well. So either of those places, you can get a book from me as well. So if you're in Pittsburgh, please Feel free to come on in. I love seeing you in person. If not, just send me an email or go to Amazon, whatever you would prefer. Yes. And now it's time for the bottom five. A series of questions not related to our main topic that are of a surrealistic and or philosophical nature. Are you ready, Nina? Whoa, that sounds deep. Yes, I'm ready. Yes. All right. Question one, which is the same question everybody gets. You might actually got this because you were on the Bad Hombres podcast yeah now yep. bad hombres and nasty women podcast so i might have busted this one out but you're you're flying solo so you get it again okay if reincarnation is real and you had to come back as an infectious disease or illness what kind of disease or illness would you be oh my god seriously yes <laughs> to see maybe i don't know maybe one that allows people to see each other for the truth that they are yeah how's that Ooh, ooh i like that i like that a lot it might be a very rude awakening indeed <laughs> it could be yes yeah. um yeah Ooh. question two Name an item from your childhood that you lost or got rid of that you most wish you could get back. Okay. Um, well, there were two items that came to mind, but the first one was this teddy bear that I had. Um, it was a little white bear. It was really soft and um, it, it would play music. And I really loved that. And I don't know what happened to it. And the other would be this diary that I called a uh, Zelda. Mm. Um, and I really think it would be beneficial if I had that still, but I don't. So. Uh, all right. Mm -hmm. Question three. Have you ever had a dream you wish you could revisit? Or is there a dream world you wish you could periodically revisit from time to time? Um, yeah, uh, I would like to go like back into time into history because I do believe in reincarnation. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to go back to like my former life and um, our lives and just check things out and just like kind of pass in there and then pass out so I could like collect some information that might be benef beneficial for me now. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Question four, the Christopher Hitchens question of the living villains of history, whose obituary would you most like to write in the future? <laughs> oh, man, if I say this, this could get me into trouble, but uh, Trump's. Uh... <laughs> That's a popular one. There's a lot of a lot of people lined up. <laughs> It could get me into all kinds of trouble, so I'm not going to say anything else right now about that. Just yeah. use your information. Yeah, that makes sense. All <laughs> right. 
And actually, question five, which you, you sort of maybe anticipated, question five, last one. It's an either or. So if you had to choose, would you rather live 100 years in the past or 100 years into the future? Well, uh, here's the thing. I'm not so sure what our future will be. I believe it's going to be left to the science fiction writers. I actually thought about that. Uh, I really think that they capture what's coming next in a lot of their work. And I'm not a science fiction writer. So I think I would go into the back, back into time. Back in the I think there's a lot that we could learn from going back into time. I think we like to pretend that there is no past, but the past yeah. helps set the future and vice versa. So it's all, all important. Yeah. And at least, uh, you know, when I started asking that question, you had to deal with World War One. At least we don't have to deal with World War One anymore. You don't have to live through World War One again now <laughs> in 2021. That's something. Yes. So I think that's about it. Our next episode will eventually happen. And Lord knows the semester's starting. So we're, this is episode 96. We're four episodes away from 100. Who knows when that 100th episode is going to happen? Uh, but it'll eventually happen. And it'll be about something. Our homepage, where you can find new and old episodes, is gonna diepodcast.com especially after I remembered to renew my web hosting. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, and Mixcloud. Follow us on Twitter at, at Gonna Die Podcast, and We're All Gonna Die is on Facebook. Thank you to our guests again, Dr. Nina Padoff, and to Andrew Fox for the lovely theme music. Later, meets. Thank you, Matt. It was my pleasure. Absolutely.